Writing of the case that follows in his 1931 book, Great Murder Mysteries, crime author Guy B. H. Logan called it California's worst crime. While that name might be somewhat of an overstatement, given contemporary horrors like the child murders of Gordon Northcott at his Wineville Chicken Ranch, to say nothing of subsequent crimes like the Black Dahlia or the Manson murders, the killing is still brutal. It's little remembered nowadays, save for an event that was almost a side note to the murder itself. This is episode 28, The Murder of Mabel Mayer. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. July 3rd, 1927 was a Sunday, and it was a windy and overcast day in Oakland, California. Two men named C.M. Wilcox and L.C. Hall were building a garage at the rear of 1738 86th Avenue. They walked into the backyard of the house and nearly stumbled over something horrible lying in the grass. The bloody body of a teenage girl, one arm raised in what was apparently a defensive posture. It looked to Wilcox and Hall like she had been beaten to death. After a moment, they found a telephone and called the police. Once the police arrived, they determined that the two workmen had been correct about the cause of death. Investigators, led by Captain Bodie A. Wallman, managed to piece together what had happened. The girl was initially attacked as she walked along on the sidewalk and was brought into the backyard. She apparently escaped her captor at some point, and smears of blood from her fists were found where she had pounded on the back door of the house, which was unfortunately vacant. With no one coming out from the house, she had apparently turned and sprinted toward a three-foot-high fence separating that yard from the one next door. And it was here that the killer caught back up to her. Seizing a piece of wood from the pile of timber to be used for the garage, he clubbed her over the head and then continued to beat her until dead. So badly, in fact, that as discovered later, almost all of her teeth were knocked out and her jaw broken in several places. Her body lay only about two or three feet from the fence. Some accounts seem to indicate that she was also stabbed, but the only mention of lacerations in the coroner's report is to ones inflicted by the board. There were no signs of any sexual assault, or indeed, any signs one was even attempted. Her dress had been pushed up, but it was apparent that this had been done when she was dragged, rather than by any deliberate action. Like most murders of past years, the notion of cordoning off crime scenes was virtually nil, and the yard was trampled by scores of onlookers. However, the police managed to procure several pieces of evidence before onlookers arrived. 
and retrieved fingerprints from the side of the house and the pieces of wood used to kill the girl. These were blurry and indistinct, but a single clear print was retrieved from a green purse, the victim's, as it turned out, that was found in the yard. The purse delivered them an identification of the victim as 15-year-old Mabel Mare, who lived only three blocks away at 2008 86th Avenue. They also managed to determine that the killer was right-handed. Upon notifying the mayors, the police found that only her mother, Emily, was present. John Mayer and Mabel's 18-year-old brother, William, had gone to Berkeley. The night before Mabel had been in Berkeley, visiting her uncle, Christian Mayer. She hadn't returned, and it was thought that maybe she had stayed at his house overnight. John and William, the night before, had been playing cards at a neighbor's house, and it was from there that William left to go pick up his sister at 10 o'clock when her train was due to arrive. As he said, When the train came into the station, and she was not on it, I waited a few minutes until all the passengers getting off had left, making sure she was not on it and I had not missed her. Then I returned to the card party and told my father. He said he would meet the next train at 10.20, so I went home. Her father, however, had no more luck than did her brother, and while he had decided to call Christian to see where she was, he couldn't find a telephone, and so he went home. The girl's wristwatch had been damaged by the bludgeon, and it had stopped at 10.06. There seems to be some dispute about the exact time. It was reported in the newspapers that it was 9.55. They had a possible time of death, whichever of those it was. Through further conversation with the family, including her uncle in Berkeley, it was determined that the previous day, Mabel had left her home at 10 a.m. She had gone to a dentist appointment and a piano lesson before meeting her uncle in town. He had invited her to his house for dinner, and they had arrived there about 6 o'clock. She planned to catch a train bound back to Oakland, and arranged for her brother William to pick her up at the train station at 10 o'clock that night, when it was due to arrive back in the city. She left her uncle's at about 9 o'clock, but by the time she arrived at the train station, found that the one she planned to take had already gone. She didn't feel like waiting for the next train, so her uncle took her to the streetcar line. It was later determined that the streetcar she boarded had left Berkeley at 9.06, and that once in Oakland, she transferred onto another streetcar and disembarked from that one at 9.45. After piecing together what could be determined of Mabel's movements the day before, only a time period from 4.30 in the afternoon until 6 o'clock in the evening could not be accounted for. Earl Staley and Leo Partington, two boys who knew Mabel, claimed to have seen her around 4.30 in the company of a rather grumpy older woman who the boys did not recognize and who did not join Mabel in greeting them. Most felt, though, that regardless of what her whereabouts may have been, that hour and a half was not too important to the investigation. Several residents of the neighborhood claimed to have heard things that evening. Mrs. Edward Howe, who lived a few houses away at 1745 86th Avenue, thought she heard a female screaming at what she at least claimed was 9.30. If the time is correct, obviously there was no relevance, as Mabel at that time was still in the streetcar. Another neighborhood woman named Margaret Patterson 
claimed to have seen two men speaking in a mixture of English and some foreign language in front of the vacant house at about 9.40. Another local, a man named C.O. Smith, said that he and his wife heard screams shortly before 10 o'clock, and when they came outside to see what was the matter, two individuals, a man and a woman, ran out of the yard of the vacant house, jumped into a car, and drove off without even closing the door. The Smith's account was discounted by police. Their reasons why are not known. It was later proven that this was a domestic dispute. A man named Shannon McDonald claimed to have seen a man run out of the shadows on 85th Avenue at 1020. An 11-year-old boy named Jesse Banchero told the police that lights were often seen in the vacant house, indicating that either the house was the home of vagrants or that there were other trespassers on the property. The finding of a trunk in the backyard, as well as a hole nearby, could be an indication that some criminal activity was going on there, and the vacant house used as a stash house of some sort. A somewhat bizarre account of the night came from the Browns, who lived two doors away. Annie Brown and her two children, Alexander and Hamilton, uh, I shouldn't tell you how long it took me to catch on to the meaning of the two children's names, arrived at their house at about 10 o'clock that evening. They claimed to have heard no screams or any signs of a struggle, nor seen anyone. All this, despite the fact that the attack should have most likely been in progress at that time. Still other neighborhood residents, Mr. and Mrs. E.W. Ferry and Mr. and Mrs. J.A. Gleason, said that early Sunday morning, so a few hours after the killing, they were accosted by a mumbling woman who was walking the streets and talking to herself. She went up to these residents and asked, Where is May? She claimed that someone named May lived across the street from her, and then after a few more moments, she said, I told them not to do it. Why did they do it? Where is May? The woman later fled, and to the best of my knowledge, police never managed to track her down. One piece of evidence found at the scene whose significance, if any, is unclear, was a string of pearls found near the body. Some seemed to indicate that they were Mabel's. Others, that they were not. The facts of the case established as best as they could be at this stage, the focus of the investigation turned toward determining a motive and possible suspect. Certainly none of the family could think of any reason or motive for an attack. Both they and several classmates agreed that Mabel was a good girl, quiet, who spent much of her time around the house. As her mother said, she was always good with us at home always with me or her father or her brother when she went out. Last year, she left the Frick School in order to help me at home because I was not very well, but she was going back to finish her high school courses in the fall. We were to spend the holiday today all at home together. Mabel's brother, William, said, if she had any enemies, I would have known of them. She was popular among school friends, and this talk of jealousy among other girls is bunk. On the 4th of July, only a day after the murder was discovered, the police already had arrested no less than six people. Three of these were arrested after police acted on a tip from a Mr. and Mrs. Frost of Alameda, who overheard a boy named Edward Fonseca 
saying that his brother had gotten out of 86th Avenue just in time. And when initially arrested, he confirmed this to police. But when his 19-year-old brother, Frank Fonseca, was arrested, he maintained that the scratches and bruises he had were inflicted when he fell out of a car. The two Fonseca boys, as well as another teenager named Richard Phillips, were released. Mabel Mayer was buried on July 5th, and her funeral was not without incident. A woman named Lillian Donna attended, shouting, I must see her! Throwing a fit, praying loudly, and attempting to fight police, who appeared to take the woman away. It turned out that Donna had previously been released from the state hospital in Napa, and that she had been a nurse in World War I and suffered brain damage as the result of an exploding shell. She was known to be violent at times. Following the funeral, she was reevaluated and once more was committed. On the night of July 5th, police were dispatched to a freight shed at a railway station near First and Webster Streets, where passers-by reported that a bloodied man had crawled from under the shed and asked for a doctor. They discovered a man named Charles Schlenker, who had apparently attempted suicide. Schlenker, or Flicker, or Flinker, or Klinkner, or Selenker, according to different accounts, I'm going with Schlenker, since that's the name the Oakland Press seemed to agree on, was essentially a vagrant. He claimed he moved from place to place because he was constantly being followed, and someone was always attempting to frame him for something. He came to Oakland from Sacramento about a week before. Deciding he wanted to kill himself, he set out for San Francisco, but soon thought the better of that. He went to the train station he was found at, cut his wrists, and smashed himself in the head with a piece of lumber repeatedly. Then he crept under the loading dock to die. After several days, hungry, bleeding, and realizing that he was not going to actually die, he sought a doctor. Although Schlenker was initially being looked at for the murder, based particularly on the coincidence of the piece of lumber he had beaten himself with being identical to that with which Ma Mabel Mayer was slain, and an inability on his part to tell police quite where he had been on Saturday night, the night of the killing, he was soon dismissed. Employees at the Avalon Hotel in Oakland confirmed that he had been there all night Saturday and Schlenker's fingerprints didn't match the single clear print that was obtained from Mabel's purse. The doctor who examined Schlenker's head wounds, though, felt quite confident in saying that they were not likely self-inflicted, as he claimed, but that, but that he was attacked. Alameda County Sheriff B.F. Becker received a letter on July 5th. The letter, written in pencil on plain-lined notebook paper, read... We read the paper and are glad that you have found the girl that was killed Saturday night. I loved this girl for a long time, and that night I asked her to marry me, and she said she loved someone else better than myself. So that made me mad, and so I told her I would take her home. Instead of taking her home, I got another fellow, and we took her there, and we killed her. So now I am on my way to my country where I belong. So now try and get me. When you receive this... I will be a long ways. The next day, the sheriff received a second letter, apparently from the same individual. This one read, I wrote a letter to you telling you that I was the one that killed Mabel, and I told you that I was on my way to my country, 
But I am not gone yet, because I want to take my pal, Nettie Wilson. She lives at 7th, and she was with me when Mabel was killed. Get her, and she will tell you all about it. Number 916 7th. Poor kid, I feel sorry for her mother when Mabel was killed. Nettie's mother is always sick, so get her, and she will tell you all about Mabel. I wrote the other letter and told you that I was going away and try to get me. Nettie Wilson, my pal. I read last night the other letter I wrote to you. Police did pick up and question Annette Wilson at 916 7th Street, but she was released after a brief questioning. A brief lead led police to question a young man named Anthony Leone, who was an acquaintance of a San Francisco gangster named Buck Kelly. Anthony was both in the, was both in the area the night of the murder, and he had sworn he was going to get even with Mabel on a previous occasion. He explained, though, that the Mabel he spoke of was a girl from Berkeley. A mystery man, known only as the Elmhurst Wolf, was sought. It was believed that he was at the time in Shasta County. He was exceedingly violent when drunk, and he was in the habit of getting drunk on Saturdays. When in such a condition, people who knew the mystery man said, he was avoided as a dangerous character. It was said he left Oakland on Monday, and at that time, he had scratches on his face. I could find nothing indicating whether this wolf was ever picked up, or if he was even Id ever identified. On July 13th, a 20-year-old named Herbert Hansen was arrested in the vicinity of Foothill Boulevard and 9th Avenue, ranting incoherently. Earlier that day, he had shouted at Mrs. Fred Shelton through her window, saying, I must have that girl. I'm going to have her. Where is she? Later, when the police picked him up, he was saying, I have slaughtered my flesh and repeatedly asked forgiveness. Mrs. Shelton's daughter, Georgie Bingham, recognized Hansen as the person who had accosted her earlier that day as well. When taken to the hospital, Hansen remained incoherent asking repeatedly for a Dr. Clark. Hansen was also later released, but charged with disturbing the peace. A 45-year-old man named John Hafer was being held in Broderick on July 14th for throwing rocks through the windshields of cars. Hafer claimed to have been in Oakland at the time Mabel was slain and also to have left soon after. He was questioned as to this by Yolo County Sheriff James W. Monroe, he claimed that, I was once in trouble in Oakland. They took my fingerprints because I lit a lot of fires up in the hills. But they didn't do anything to me at that time. Oakland, for their part, had no record of any offenses committed by anyone named John Hafer. Although Sheriff Monroe said that he may have changed his name, it's equally likely, perhaps even more so, that he was outright lying, since Hafer also said that his body was charged with a high level of radium contracted from a comet which had recently passed. Another man, this one the attacker of a young girl in Salinas, was also sought. He drove a car with Washington or Montana plates, it was said, and he was middle-aged with reddish hair and a medium build. A man named Raymond Rhodes was later arrested for the crime on July 30th. It later turned out that he had incapacitated the girl in the course of a robbery. Rhodes and several other inmates later broke out of the Salinas jail. 
On July 7th, a most interesting clue surfaced. A Mrs. M.J. Perry was visiting a widowed woman who lived two doors away from the vacant house with her two children, two sons aged 19 and 28, when she noticed bloodstains in the backyard of that house. When police questioned the widow, she denied hearing anything out of the ordinary around the time of Mabel's killing. Although other neighborhood residents said that she had told them just the opposite, that she had heard screams at that time. Though the name of this woman was not released, the mention of living two doors away makes me wonder if this was Annie Brown, whose statement I mentioned a few minutes ago, and who did, indeed, have two sons. I don't know their ages, though. Another man who, la who later entered the suspect pool was a man named David A. Barnett, a 35-year-old lumberman from San Leandro. On January 15, 1929, he was charged with the attempt at kidnapping of a young girl who lived on 82nd Avenue, named Eloise Winfeld. He claimed that he had, indeed, had the five-year-old in his car, but he was merely taking her back to her home. Mrs. Stanley Winfeld, the girl's mother and a neighbor of the Winfelds, disagreed. Barnett had been essentially run out of his previous hometown of Toledo, Ohio, after he was convicted of several offenses against young girls there. A witness later um, told the Oakland police that there were murders similar to mayors in Toledo at the time that Barnett lived there. Well, it sounds pretty obvious to me that this witness was referring to the Toledo Clubber, who I did a previous episode on. And, yes, Barnett would have been there during the initial um, round of Toledo Clubber attacks. The one, the, just the ones in 1925, all the later ones. He was already gone by then. On March 19th, a policeman named Powell Pierce said that Barnett was a man known as Santa Claus, whom he had seen many times in the past loitering around the Frick School, which just so happened to be the one that Mabel Mayer attended. The man was known to shower gifts on the young girls who attended the school. Describing the events, which took place when Officer Pierce was a traffic cop, he said, High school boys from other schools used to come around after school and meet some of the large girls, and so I told them to keep away. I had no trouble with them, but every once in a while, a man would show up and try to talk to the girls. I chased them away, too, and told them to stay away. Most of them did, but I had to arrest two fellows. There was more or less trouble of that kind all the time, but nothing like when that fellow with a blue car started coming. He was a sticker, used to drive up in the morning before school, and after he had stuck around for a few days, usually had a girl or two in the car with him when he drove up. He'd come back at lunchtime, too, and all the kids thought he was a great guy, used to buy them candy, ice cream, and sometimes whole lunches. The kids used to wait for him to drive up. I warned him to stay away a couple of times, but he kept right on coming. And one day, I had a talk with Principal Finger of, Fris of Frick School about the blue car. Finger told me not to allow any men or outside boys to hang around, to drive them all away and keep them away. But every time I'd get busy with traffic or something else, I'd turn around and find that blue car parked along the curb. It went that way for a month or more, and the bigger girls were getting friendlier and friendlier with a man. 
He was always jolly and friendly with the girls, and a regular Santa Claus, too. Never missed having some sort of goodies with him to feed the kids. He used to sit there when school wasn't in session with two girls in the front seat with him, and several times I saw him with his arms around him. There would be different girls at different times. All of them seemed to like the man. Finally, one day it got so bad I went over to him and said, Hey you, get out of here and don't let me see you back either. That made him sore, and he said, I'll break you. You can't talk that way to me. But I told him he had it just the wrong way around. I told him I was the one that would do the breaking if I ever caught him around there again. So he drove away, and after that he didn't come up in front of the school anymore. But he didn't stop bothering the girls, though. I used to catch glimpses of him ducking that blue car around the corners, and he used to wait for the girls down on 64th Avenue, the Frick schools between 62nd and Foothill Boulevard, you know. But before I drove him away, I noticed that one of his favorites was the mare girl. She would drive up to school with him and jump out and run inside as soon as the car stopped. Then he'd come back for her and take her home after school, too. I saw her with him more than any of the others. After I drove him away from in front of the school, women who lived in the neighborhood often complained to me that the blue car was hanging around on side streets and the girls were going to it. Headquarters got plenty of complaints from women phoning in the same sort of story those days, too. The officers told me about it when I made my reports about the man. But I never saw that fellow in the blue car either after Mabel Mayer was murdered. He never showed around there after that. At the time of the investigation into the murder, I told my superior officer, Lieutenant W.F. Wood, about a man in a blue car hanging around the school where Mabel went, but I wasn't on the case and didn't hear any more about it. It was said that several girls who were classmates of Mabel's also recognized Barnett as the man in the blue car, and that Barnett also recognized Officer Pierce. This all seemed to implicate Barnett in the murder, or very, or at the very least, of being a pretty creepy guy. The implications were furthered when it was found that a Walter Olmsted, a.k.a. Walter Freitas, a boy that Mabel was friends with, was an employee of Barnett's company. And even further, when Gordon Pierce, unrelated to Officer Pierce, the financial officer of the Borman Manufacturing Company, revealed that the window frames and lumber that were being used in the construction at the murder scene had been supplied by Barnett's company. For his part, Barnett denied that he had any idea who Mabel Mayer was outside of reading newspaper accounts of her death. Olmsted somewhat confirmed this, saying, He may have known Mabel, but I don't know that he did. He didn't give any indication of knowing her when we talked about the murder. Olmsted said he and Barnett had discussed the murder once, with Barnett saying the murder was a terrible thing and that he didn't understand how anyone could do that. In the long run, though Barnett was convicted of the Winfelt kidnapping and sentenced to 20 years, he was not successfully connected to the murder of Mabel Mayer. But was the murder of Mabel Mayer an isolated incident? It seemed that some mysterious person had been in the neighborhood for a few weeks, walking around on porches, looking in windows, and shining flashlights into homes. On the day of the murder, James G. Roy of 2042 86th Avenue, so just up a street from the mayor's, said that he had seen a strange man sitting on a garbage can. Every time a woman passed by, he leered horribly. 
Roy described the man as dark-featured, roughly dressed, and likely about 160 pounds. On June 28th, so just under a week before the killing, Rosalie Morgan was, a, was accosted by a man who leapt at her from the tall grass near another vacant house on 90th Avenue. This man was dressed in an old and tattered blue coat. He grabbed Rosalie by the arm and said something, but the girl screamed and managed to get away, and he ran off. The detail of the blue coat was held to be significant, as a scrap of blue fabric was found caught on a corner of the house. However, this loses some weight in my opinion, as Mabel herself was wearing a blue coat as well, and the scrap could just as easily have been from her own clothing. On July 7th, a few days after Mabel was killed, another attack took place, this one on Aileen Street. Violet Tidwell and sisters Doris and Edna Phillips were accosted by a so-called wild man. The man was dressed in white corduroy pants, a sweater, and glasses, and was in his late 20s. Tidwell said that she had been accosted by the same man, although dressed differently, the night before as well. Mrs. J.C. Hayes, who lived in the neighborhood of the murder house, reported seeing an unknown stranger on July 6th, talking in an irrational and excited manner. She was sitting on her front porch when a man came up to her, saying that he was a magazine salesman. Within a few minutes, he had begun talking about the murder and was asking Mrs. Hayes an uncomfortable number of questions. Then he abruptly said he was actually a Secret Service agent, and then he declared... He could have committed the murder and gotten away without leaving any tangible clue. A car drove by slowly, and the mystery man shook his head at the driver. Mrs. Hayes, creeped out by this point, went inside and locked the door. She said the man was about 30, 5 foot 10 inches. He, when he wore a checked suit, yellow shirt, bow tie, and tan shoes. And her account, um, as dramatic as it seems was corroborated by J.B. Trevethick. In another instance which took place in the days following the murder, two reporters standing in the backyard of the, of the vacant house reported that while they looked about, a bedraggled man with stringy hair came up and stared at the spot where the body was found for a brief while before moving away. Also on July 6th, an electrician named John Smith was at the house I'm uncertain whether they meant simply as a passerby, a sightseer, if you will, or, or whether he was another person working on the garage. When he saw emerging from the home a form that seemed to be a man, dressed in something like a black kimono, who had a weirdly indescribable something on or around his head. He thought this was a ghost. It was found that Ruby Swain who had been the last tenant of the house where Mabel was slain, had moved out after she had suspicions that the house was haunted. She often heard weird sounds in the house, and felt the entire place had an oppressive atmosphere. But as can be seen from the above, Smith was far from the only person to see someone unusual in the area. A reporter named Charles DeSoto, who was working for the Oakland Post-Inquirer, disguised himself as a rag picker, and went from house to house in the neighborhood gathering discarded clothing. Rag pickers were essentially uh, essentially just basically homeless people who went around and gathered rags to 
recycle kind of um i take it kind of similar to how homeless people now kind of stereotypically pick up bottles and cans and things like that this he did with the idea in his mind that the murderer was probably a resident of the area and would seize on the opportunity to dispose of their bloodstained clothing after about a week though he abandoned the effort which had proved fruitless was the bedraggled man or Smith's apparition actually DeSoto? And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. <laughs>